I'm walking into a school and it's predominantly white male pictures everywhere. When the teacher would say something about me, uh, she would completely get the continent that I was from wrong. She thought I was Native American. And I remember suppressing it and going home and crying about it. And I lost it. I lost it. All those years of building up those microaggressions suddenly came out volcanically. Welcome to the Be Change Podcast. We're your hosts, Warren Goldstein-Gelb. And Marcy Goldstein-Gelb. This podcast is for leaders and emerging leaders who care about social change and about how to make a great difference in the world. The podcast explores strategies, tools, and stories to help you strengthen your social change and nonprofit leadership skills. Mark Cordone is a positive psychology coach and co-founder of The Joy Revolution. Mark coaches social justice leaders who march to the beat of their own drum to claim their joy as they make a difference for others. The author of Beyond Resilient, The Coach's Guide to Ecstatic Growth, Mark served as Associate Director of Health Promotion and Multicultural Programs and Services at Emory University, where he developed programs on social justice, positive psychology, and community engagement. He received his certificate in positive psychology from the Whole Being Institute, as did I. Welcome, Mark. Marcy Warren, it's great to be here. So I wanted to start off with talking about the link between uh, positive psychology and social justice. We saw a video presentation in which you described an experience being bullied as a youth of color in a predominantly white school and how it impacted your early adult years. Can you share that story uh, with our listeners? That was actually, Warren, the first time I ever told that story because I was in such a feeling of shame that that ever were uh, to occur. And uh, I found it to be actually very therapeutic when I, when I told it, because uh, you go to look at things of shame and you look at it from a neutral standpoint and it's like, hey, this is the very beginning of forgiveness uh, and radical self-forgiveness. I don't know if uh, y'all have ever watched the Sesame Street show where one of these things is not like the other. <laughs> yes. Long time but, uh, ago, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, I, it, it was very early on that I, I started to view myself as, well, I am that one triangle in a sea of squares, you know? And... Um, it, it, the way that it started to show up were were microaggressions, you know, like something is off. Um, I can't tell what. Um, maybe it's because I'm walking into a school and it's predominantly white male pictures everywhere. Maybe it's when the teacher uh, would say something uh, about me. Uh, she would completely get the continent that I was from wrong. She thought I was Native American. And I would laugh it off. And... Um, it started to escalate um, to the point where I was, I remember suppressing it and going home and crying about it. Mm -hmm. and, and it came to a head one day when there was a certain uh, member in class that was just, you know, I don't know whether they were a bully or, or they were just curious, you know, but that was my interpretation. Um, and it was something along the lines of like, uh, hey, is Mark from that tribe, that Native American tribe? And I lost it. Mm -hmm. I lost it. All those years of building up those microaggressions suddenly came out volcanically, 
And I remember, I, I, I remember it was, it was almost like a knee jerk effect. I spit on him, you know, and not only did I spit on him, but I was in a rage. And so when the teacher came up to me and said, you are going to detention boy, <laughs> like, I turned to the teacher and I pushed back on the teacher and I said, you're going to send me to, to detention after all these years of what he's been doing to me. And, and the teacher, the, the, the teacher took the, uh, the detention away. And it really was at that point that I, I realized that anger could be used as a manipulation tool. Uh, fear could be used as a manipulation tool. And so it was for the longest time that I thought that social justice um, was rooted in fear tactics, manipulation tactics, us versus them. Um, and, and it wasn't until I was working in a, a higher education institution and a student brought in a positive psychology syllabus and he said, Mark, I think this is the, I think this is the solution to everything. Um, and I looked at it and I was like, what? There is no us versus them here. There is no right and wrong here. This is about kumbaya. This is shelf help. What is like, no, get out. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and and uh, being a neuroscience major, I, I eventually uh, looked at the science of it. Oftentimes when we think of social contagion, we think of um, fear being spread but they were talking about social contagion from the standpoint of joy being spread. And how can that be spread to the masses uh, in places where there, are, there is no hope? Um, also, the idea of breaking bread with folks. And I know you've had many people on the show that talk about breaking bread, but the science of breaking bread, um, having controversy with civility, um, all of this stuff started to, to really break down the way that I thought social justice movements could be put together. Um, uh, even things like making the invisible visible, you know, uh, things like speaking up when you see injustice happening. You don't have to speak up and point fingers at people. You know, oftentimes it's not a, it's not another person um, uh, that, that is the issue. It, it's, it's oftentimes the, the society, um, the, the structures within societies that can be changed. Um, and and, and it, it really, really, really did change the way that um, I, I looked at uh, social justice. I was that angry Asian <laughs> you know, that threw the yeah. chairs. And also at the same time, it changed the way that I looked at positive psychology, which I thought at the time was literally war. And I thought it was shelf help. I thought it was, it, it, it was garbage. Yeah. Um, and when you start putting empirical data in front of me, even though it's one part of thinking, you know, the other part being the heart and the gut, but it really added some credence. Now you have neuroscience to back it up. And it, it was really a great time of, of waking up and, and, and this sort of conscious evolution. And, and I, I, I really think that the two fit really well together. Huh. Uh, well, the heart of most social justice organizing yes. is identifying a target and using whatever pressure is possible to force them to respond to the demands of the impacted people, you know, mm -hmm. be it tenants, workers, et cetera. Um, so can you explain to experienced organizers 
how your vision of spreading joy can be effective in addressing these types of injustices. Absolutely. And, and I think that it comes back to that idea of social contagion, right? Um, I think, uh, I don't want to call it antiquated um, social justice because there's still a place for it. But uh, social justice that's taught is really all about putting an organizational press on, on, on certain systems, certain people, and um, almost out of fear, they changed. But the thing is, is that if you put an organizational press on somebody, that doesn't necessarily mean the transformation is going to happen on the inside. Can you explain what you mean by organizational press? Absolutely. So, um, uh, so for example, uh, uh, at the very, very beginning of, um, of, of sort of the, the women's movements, um, uh, the organizational press that they would put was um, uh, women would stand with signs just saying equal rights. Every single day they would stand there with those, with those signs, putting a little press. And, and press is a, a, a form of pressure, right? Okay. Um, a, a form of awareness, right? Um, there's other forms of organizational press where it's, you know, you'll see someone burn down a pharmacy where they, where they have nothing left to lose. But this form of organizational press can be very um, uh, subtle, where every day someone stands there and makes the invisible visible. Now, that press can make people very uncomfortable, right? Yeah. And, and uh, the change that happens is change to get rid of that discomfort, <laughs> Yeah. Not really transformational change. There's five things that I, I, I teach in the joy revolution. The first thing is making the invisible visible. Speak up when you see some sort of atrocity. That doesn't mean that you can be uh, full of joy and not full of anger. It actually means that you can be full of joy and still not be okay with the status quo. Right. Um, it, one doesn't mean the, negating one doesn't mean the presence of the other. The other thing is is building champions. Um, building champions is all about controversy with civility. Me versus you, Warren. I'm gonna take you out. I'm gonna take you out. You're my enemy. What it means to sort of feel like you're not a human. Who on a meta level uh, walks on a campus and doesn't feel a sense of belonging? The third thing is you've had many people come on your show and talk about how do you actually move through organizational structure without burning everything in your wake, you know, and I, I truly believe in that as well. The fourth thing that I talk about in, in the Joy Revolution is this idea of catalyzing change. And I think this happens a lot. I heard, a, a, I heard one of your, your guests talk about it. Catalyzing change, not becoming the catalyst for change. Because so many times we think that we have to become martyrs for the cause. And the next thing you know, we're burnt out. Um, we're taking a picture of ourselves in a bathtub in Instagram with a glass of wine saying mental health day. Um, just because uh, you're putting in quite a bit of work into the movement doesn't mean the movement has to consume you. And so I'm a firm believer of proactive self-care. 
Um, and then the final thing is sustaining the action. Um, I'd, I like to think about it as um, a jump rope. You know, you're not going to be a part of the jump rope forever. There's going to be a part where you go in and you do your jump rope and then you jump out and someone else steps in for you. And so in many ways, it's old school movement work with a bent towards joy rather than this bent toward towards anger and fear, which will burn you out. It will completely burn you out. I want to go back for a moment because I'm actively involved in worker justice for folks that have been abused and discriminated against and retaliated against. And so a lot of the strategies that unions and worker centers and COSH groups, which are coalitions for safety and health, Mm -hmm. are about bringing workers together and having them identify, as you said, what what is the leverage, what's the power that they have, and how do they get employers to respond, frankly, to their demands for basic justice and and respect. There's a positive side of it because it comes from solidarity and the joy of being able to speak up and take action. But there's also this sort of common enemy, frankly, which is (laughs) the the institution that has abused them. So uh, can you have it both ways? Is Is there a way to create this joy that you're talking about and calling out when you're facing this power imbalance? Yeah, the way I like to think about it is if you look at a a rosebud, right? Um, The rosebud today is absolutely perfect, right? It's not where it should be at. We have a vision for where it's going, but also at the same time, it seems like a paradox. But uh, I, I do think that the two can coexist. If you have a common enemy, when we defeat that enemy, what's left? There will always be more in terms of growth. There will always be more in terms of consciousness raising. There will always be a new bar that is set, but we get to go and project where it's going to go in the future. Someone taught that to me a long time ago. You can completely get consumed with the anger of all of this stuff, but also at the same time, you got to stay grounded in this work or you will completely burn out. When you say rosebud, just to clarify... I mean, anything that is not complete, like a rosebud is not a rose yet, right? Yeah. It's not there. It's not fully developed yet. And, and anytime we look at something and we're like, ah, oh, it's not the rose. It's not perfect. We're, we should be angry about this. You know, we, we should push it more. You, you push movement work a little bit too hard and you kill the movement. Uh, you, you, you push things into anarchy. Um, and so in many ways, there's a certain patience that comes with joy. When you're building controversy with civility, it's going to take time. Um, when you're breaking bread, it's going to take time. Yeah. You know, uh, and, and so that's what I more so see as the sort of the chrysalis and, and, and the rosebud. It, it's not going to happen overnight. And it's okay that it's not going to happen overnight we can maybe combine this social justice issue with your coaching. Let's say I were to say, here's a group of workers and and they have experienced this and they are coming together and uh, finally being able to articulate it, but they want to see change. So how would you coach them in a way that fits with your approach? The first thing that I always go into is it's cool to express 
whatever emotions that you're going through. Um, I know that when I don't express the feels, it comes out erupting in the same way that it came out with, with my classmate that, that one day. I would talk about sense of belonging. And what is it that brings us together? What is it that activates us? I think if I were to bring it back to positive psychology, I think that the work of Carol Dweck, growth mindset, and Snyder's hope theory are, are, are really great things to look at. Um, as a group, what is our fantastic future? And how can we actually get there? It increases our willpower. And also at the same time, strategically, it, it increases our way power. Way power being the GPS system that we have to get to our ultimate goal. Just as powerful is hope theory. Um, when it comes to a growth mindset, instead of saying, uh, you know, hey, here we are, a rigid squad. If it doesn't go our way, then it's not going to make any sense versus having a growth, growth mindset, which is, okay, how can we take in the feedback that we're getting from these conversations and move forward with that feedback as a way to propel me forward. One more thing is this work of Hellwell, who talked about how do you create enablers of well-being? And it's five things that I would talk to the organization about. Number one is how much do you feel trusted in the organization? The less trust that you, that you feel like you have, the less engaged you feel. The idea of benevolence is whenever we feel like we're doing um, uh, amazing, great things for the community, when we do that as a group, it like supercharges it. So are we creating spaces for benevolence? Are our processes as equal in terms of the value as our outcomes? And then when it comes to our outcomes, are we... Are we creating positive outcomes or are we creating outcomes that are like, let's avoid negative things, let's risk reduce versus let's create powerful, positive outcomes. And then finally, the power of the shared experience like you were talking about. Anytime you, you bring together people and engage them, you've got something good going on. I believe that, that you have referenced and used as a model or example, Gandhi, um, as yeah. many others have. But uh, I wanted to see if you could, if you can uh, explain your understanding of Gandhi's approach and how it fits with this model of social justice organizing and activism. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, boy, I where to start with Gandhi? Um, I, I, th I think I'm going to start with one place with Gandhi, and, and and it's the idea of starting internally, right? Um, because when we look at the world as an us versus them type of place, it makes it so much more difficult, Marcy, <laughs> to try to get some things done. Gandhi was uh, paraphrased as saying that when you change the way you look at yourself you change the way that you look at the world. And so there's so much self-work uh, involved in social change. And I always used to think of it as, it's always external to me. I want to see outcomes happen. I want to see this happen. What I missed was the, the work that was involved with me changing the way that, for lack of a better term, I viewed my enemies. I viewed my rivals 
And when I started to shift that away, and I haven't shifted it totally, but when I started to shift that away to, okay, we're all in this together. Let's figure this out. It started to feel like we were all on the same page and we were trying to get that supercharged level of benevolence going. It's also the, the idea of power versus force right? When it comes to Gandhi, I I feel like he's uh, a perfect example of exhibiting power and not needing to use force. I mean, with compassion and, and listening and seeing others as not only folks that he can work with, but folks that he could negotiate with, um, suddenly like he brought the monarchy to its knees. When we're thinking about, are we using force? Are we twisting arms? Are we using fear? Or are we treating people like humans? Are we being compassionate to ourselves? Are we practicing proactive self-care? You know, I, I don't want to get too woo, but like, are we seeing ourselves as these cr- incredible individuals? Because when we see ourselves as an incredible individual, then the universe is starting to work for us. There's a mindset involved in it. And um, that's what I love so much about Gandhi was that he started with mindset first and then went to think about change. Um, Gandhi, again, was in joy, but he did not have to be devoid of uh, wanting to see change in the world. And that's what I meant by the, um, the rosebud. He saw himself in a certain way, but that's not devoid of of uh, wanting to see change. Yeah, it seems to me also that, and I'm not an authority on Gandhi, so um, Mm -hmm. Gandhi wanted to help the quote-unquote enemy face themselves and what they were doing. And he was seeking a transformation in his enemies by having them have to confront. uh, So, for, for example, when they were beating protesters, Mm. In the protesters' acts of civil disobedience, there was an opportunity for people to change because when they questioned, well, why am I beating this person who's not doing anything except for sitting there? Gandhi's hope was that uh, people would have to face themselves. Does that make sense? I, I love it. It, it. We're going and we're looking at a multidisciplinary approach to, to change now um, because you know, I'll be the first to say positive psychology is not the answer to everything. And I I feel, Warren, what you're talking about there is by the use of that strategy, Gandhi was uh, having uh, folks confront their shadow sides. Yeah. Right. And, And that's a totally different type of psychology, but one that pairs very well with positive psychology. You know, it's a no brainer to say that we're living in an incredibly divided country. Um, and I'm wondering if this has come up at all in your practice or in your engagement with others about ways that you think might help bridge that gap. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, it's come up ever since the joy revolution has been started, sort of the divisiveness that's going on, even the way that, that people are, are, are constructing their realities around Facebook, right? You're, you don't believe what I believe, unfriend me. 
right? Um, There's a lot of that going on. And one of the things that uh, I talk about and and the people in the Joy Revolution talk about is if there's some good opportunities for folks to really take a good hard look and see what is this person mirroring right now in my life. If we are this alerted, alarmed by this person, what is the opportunity that this person is giving us to learn about ourselves? There's always opportunity in whatever it is that that we're in conflict with. And um, uh, it's not a popular question to ask, but also to ask the tough questions right now uh, in a very charged environment could be the solution to having these uh, patterns keep coming up over and over and over and over again. Patterns of violence, patterns of hate. And it could be uh, a, a way to disrupt that by seeing um, your brother or your sister in things that are usually something where you see an enemy people who have not been exposed to people like you, Mm -hmm. uh, who would, you know, goes back to an earlier question. It it is a take, it probably takes a fair amount of time to unpack the fact, the idea that somebody should maybe consider the, for example, the Trump supporters uh, point of view, and maybe there's something in there of value. How do you open up the possibility for conversation? Yeah, good question, Warren. Um, and this is just me talking on behalf. This is me talking in I, not talking on behalf of any joy revolution or anything like that. I welcome cynicism, and when you create spaces, not safe spaces like in the 1980s, remember the, those things that they used to create, but when you create spaces of dissonance where people can come in and actually ask um, uh, tough questions or curious questions or cynical questions, that's where the learning happens. You know, um, I, I don't think that uh, anything that I do is to try to get all of these things are just like the other, like I sang at the very beginning. I think that kind of diversity, that kind of difference in mindset only pushes you to grow. It only pushes you to start thinking outside of whatever box or status quo that you were in before. Is there a certain amount of readiness that you have to have? I believe so. And when you're ready, finding a place of of both challenge and support for that readiness is really what what those um, spaces of dissonance would look like. I never want to see cynicism go away. I would say keep asking those questions because those questions, when coming from a place of curiosity, when coming from a place of wanting to learn more about the world and the people you live with, can only lead to increased consciousness, really understanding, uh, uh, understanding your neighbors uh, a little bit better. And I actually think that it's a really good thing to be cynical. If you could think of an example of a social justice leader, and it could be composite if you don't want anybody to be identified, who came to you for coaching and what was it that they came to you for and give us some idea about 
what sort of process you took them through to offer this coaching? There was a, a, a social justice leader that um, had come in and her joy revolution was breaking the mold of what essentially what a yogi looks like. And, and we sat down and she was like, it looks very skinny, <laughs> very young, very white. And it, it really has folks feel who are not a part of that, like they're excluded right? The approach that we took was opening a conversation up and very simple, but opening up a conversation in some pretty popular magazines about what does it mean to be a yogi? Um, Also at the same time, um, she put together a social media campaign. We believe in social media for social good and very non-typical looking yogis of every race, color, gender, um, uh, body image and, and uh, basically said this is what a yogi looks like. Moving forward with that, it, it really was an awareness campaign at this point, making the invisible visible. She moved forward with taking about 30 stories of your atypical yogis and uh, compiled them together in a book. So one of the biggest things Um, I'm a big proponent of writing and speaking on stage because suddenly now that the invisible is visible, suddenly people are going to be like, hey, I want to tell my story now. (laughs) From there, we helped create her coaching practice around uh, sort of that atypical yogi and changing that narrative of what yogis look like nowadays. So, so it, it wasn't meant to be a us versus you type of thing. And in many ways, uh, I, I would say that she was successful in that she really garnered a lot of folks who said, yeah, that's me. And I've never felt truly comfortable going into those yoga studios. So, so, so that's one um, indicator of, of what that might look like. That's that's a great story, and and by yogi, do you you don't mean strictly yoga instructor? You mean anyone who is yeah. interested yeah. In, in engaging? Yeah. Um, that's a great example. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, yeah. Many social justice leaders and activists have experienced trauma. I mean, you, you yourself, frankly, experienced trauma. Um, mm-hmm. Be it mass incarceration, immigrating to this country, being bullied, living in impoverished conditions, yeah. and uh, we're aware from your previous writings and videos um, that you identified five elements of growth that can address trauma. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, abs- absolutely. Um, it, and I, I think I think the first thing is whether it be trauma or whether it be happiness or ecstasy, there are still opportunities to grow no matter what. In doing a, a, a meta literature review that um, I had discovered, it's the same five things no matter what, whether it's post-traumatic growth or post-ecstatic growth. The first one is surround yourself with virtuous friends. And by virtuous friends, um, it's, it's Aristotle's notion of this is a person who derives their highest level of happiness it's not the person that um, when you're happy and then they call you and you call them up and then they're a little bit jealous of you. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's the person that is, is they can't be more 
happy for you when, when, when you reach that level, that ultimate level of happiness. I know you've had a, a couple positive psychologists on this show before, um, and, and uh, this, this is probably a repeat, but making positive emotions a trait. Um, Barbara Fredrickson's work about broadening and building um, is huge. And whether you're working with a virtuous friend who's a um, therapist or a virtuous friend who's just your best buddy, you know, you can work on creating positive emotions in your life. The number one, I I believe Maria, who was a guest on your show before, talked about um, gratitude and really, really, really practicing that from the inside out. Even when you're languishing, you can, it's harder but you can still practice gratitude and positive emotions. It gets you out of yourself. Of, of, it gets you out of your own way. This is, you've had people on the show talking about this before, but it's coming together. Um, making meaning of the world by spotting opportunities. This is the work of Viktor Frankl, right? Whether it be something that's very stressful or something that's ecstatic, because people who go through things that are ecstatic sometimes don't savor it. Um, and, and people who are stressed sometimes don't see the opportunity in it. So really finding the opportunity that exists along the spectrum. The, the fourth one is, is the idea of grit. Angela Duckworth's uh, work um, from the University of Pennsylvania, um, which is really a mix between what is your truest passion and also at the same time when you're moving forward with that true passion and you hit a wall, what is the resilience you're going to take to get through, around, underneath that wall? That's, that's sort of the idea of grit. Um, and then uh, you kind of called me out on this one. This one was the Gandhi quote. Change the way that you see yourself and you will change the way that you see and experience the world. And it's really fascinating because you put all five of those together. It doesn't matter whether you're in trauma. It doesn't matter whether you're in um, ecstasy, whether you're high functioning or low functioning. These five pieces seem to show up every time I go and read a positive psychology article. And so I think that's something to keep in mind as you move forward and, and make the most of your world. Great. Thank you. That was um, wonderful. Uh, is there anything that we didn't hit today, cover today? Well, I, uh, positive psychology is an applied science. I would dare folks to think about, well, if positive psychology is about looking at what's working, what does positive economics look like? What does positive politics look like? What does positive anthropology look like? And really pushing this notion of uh, of looking at what's working first to multiple disciplines. It's not just positive psychology that this works in. And there's some really positive damage that we can do when, when we can come together and think about starting things off with what's working. Yeah, and that's a, that's a great point. Um, and even in the presidential, the Democratic presidential debate from yesterday, one of the candidates was talking about not using traditional measures for the economy. Did he talk about PERMA? No, he did not talk oh. about PERMA. But it was about health and well-being, really, instead yeah, of... right you know, on. Right? right on. Yeah, I was, I was totally thinking about Very cool. psychology when, when he mentioned that. And so, uh, well, first of all, the Joy Revolution, how can one find out more about that program? 
the, the website is joyrevolution.com. So if you go to Instagram and you um, hashtag the joy revolution, you'll see uh, people who are sort of taking the stuff that has been taught in the joy revolution and what it looks like in their life. Uh, what does that praxis look like? Um, and, and that's really what the most exciting thing is. And then how can people get in touch with you, um, you yeah, know, more directly on the web or, or? Yeah. So, so, so my email is Mark, uh, M-A-R-C at joyrevolution.com. Fantastic. We're so fortunate to have had you on our show. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you very much for, for being on the show. And uh, thank you. Great luck to you. Thanks for joining us on the Be Change podcast. If you like the show, subscribe on whatever podcast player you are listening on and on our website, b-change.net. Please follow us on Facebook and share with your friends and colleagues. Thanks to our producer, John Consilio, and to our partners, Somerville Community Media and Boston Free Radio.